Welcome to our latest episode in our podcast series looking at the FCA's consumer duty. My name is Sarah Cody and I'm counsel in Linklater's financial regulation practice in London. I'm joined by my colleague Duncan Campbell, who's a senior associate in the same team. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to look at what I think is one of the most interesting and perhaps least understood aspects of the duty, and that is the requirement to consider behavioural biases. Now, to do this, we've been joined by Ruth Persian from the Behavioural Insights team. The Behavioural Insights team is a social purpose company that uses evidence from the behavioural sciences and rigorous evaluation methods to help people and communities achieve better outcomes. Ruth, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. As firms move through their implementation programmes towards the July deadline, purely legal questions such as scoping are beginning to be replaced by questions about more operational aspects of the duty. Behavioural biases fall squarely in that category. Both the cross-cutting and outcome-specific rules repeatedly require firms to consider the impact of behavioural biases as they design and distribute products, but give very little indication about what these are and how they might actually impact retail customers. So today, we're going to answer these three questions. First, what are behavioural biases and related to that, actually, the behavioural insights approach? And secondly, how do they impact on financial decision making? And finally, how can firms take into account behavioural biases in the implementation of the consumer duty? So, Ruth, what are behavioural biases? Well, essentially, behavioural biases are all these small ways in which people's decisions and behaviour deviate from what we would traditionally consider, quote unquote, rational. They influence how we make decisions and how we behave. They are closely related to heuristics, which are shortcuts our brains use to navigate the world around us by creating automatic subconscious associations. But while these shortcuts are often quite helpful, they can also lead to suboptimal outcomes, especially when the world around us is designed for rational actors and not for actual human beings. Um, That's great. So can you give us an example of how this actually plays out in the real world? So yeah, one example is that we tend to stick to whatever the default is. This has an impact on our decisions in a lot of contexts. One of the most famous applications being in relation to retirement savings. A rational human being would figure out how much money they need for retirement and the best way to save for it. For many people in the UK, this would be a workplace pension. But before 2011, people in the UK had to make an active choice to save into such a pension, decide that it was the right thing for them to do, and then fill in some forms. If you think about it, taking some time to think about the options and sort out some paperwork is a tiny cost compared to the huge financial benefits of having a pension. But many people never did. That's why the government decided to introduce auto-enrollment. That is, they simply changed the default from not saving to saving. And it actually worked. In the first 18 months after the change, enrollment in workplace pensions increased from 55 to 70%. You would have actually never seen this increase if everyone was perfectly rational, because everyone would have figured out their optimal way to save for retirement way earlier. But sometimes we do actually make decisions by going through and listing the pros and cons methodically, doing the maths and so on. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. The Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman uses the image of our brain having a 
system one and a system two. System one is the part of our brain that makes quick, intuitive decisions and relies on these shortcuts. System two is what we would think of as the rational part. System one plays a bigger role than many of us would like to admit, and it's quite easily influenced by things such as defaults, context, or by what we see other people around us do. And because it takes a lot of effort to use system two, we are also less likely to use it when we are tired or when we have got a lot of other stuff going on. So you could see how behavioral biases could play more of a role for financial decision making for people who have more worries about money. So with the context of this system word and system two, how do behavioral insights come in? Yeah, it's really just a term for an approach that is all about using and generating evidence about human behavior. When we use a behavioral insights approach to address a problem, we combine what we know from the behavioral sciences, for example, about behavioral biases, with empirical approaches to understand behavior and context. And we also generate rigorous evidence on how behaviors can be shifted, for example, using randomized control trials. Rhys, you hinted at this earlier, but what roles do behavioural biases play specifically in financial decision-making by individuals? Yeah, so behavioural biases affect every aspect of our lives, financial decision-making included. For example, we know that because of the so-called anchoring effect, our decisions are influenced too much by one piece of information, even if it's irrelevant to the actual decision. This plays out, for example, when it comes to credit card repayment. The default is to repay the minimum, and that's what people quite often see on their credit card statements. This number should really play no role at all in our decision of how much to pay back other than it being the minimum. But it does influence us, meaning that many of us pay back less than we could, which increases the interest we pay over time. In an online experiment, we at BIT showed that if you change the layout of the website where people have to choose their monthly repayment to make this minimum amount less salient, people plan to repay significantly higher amounts each month. So So these biases really influence how we interact with and use financial products. Another example is the impact of what we call frictions. These are small barriers that make it harder for us to do something. And we know that frictions have a disproportionate effect on our actions, on our behavior. Even an extra click on a website to complete an action can put people off. Everyone who has ever signed up to a trial subscription and then just never got around to cancelling because it's just a bit too difficult knows that. The thing is that financial products are full of these frictions and other features that lead to suboptimal outcomes for customers. Um, The academic Cass Sunstein calls these frictions sludge. So I guess because the aim behind the consumer duty is to create better outcomes for customers, it's uh, only natural that consideration around behavioural biases are such an important part of the duty. Yes, totally. But this didn't come out of nowhere. You could argue that the government's consumer empowerment strategy that was published in 2011 and draws on evidence from the behavioural sciences was an important building block. Over the next few years, organisations like the Behavioural Insights Team, the FCA and the Financial Capability 
lab that we ran with the Money and Pension Service generated more and more rigorous evidence on how small changes to products and policies can be used to help people make better financial decisions. Some examples of our work include the credit card repayment study that I spoke about just now, testing how to make terms and conditions more easily understood, and then also, for example, redesigning letters to increase the engagement of mortgage customers in arrears with their lenders. So we are really pleased that the consumer duty now places so much emphasis on the importance of a rigorous understanding of human behavior and on creating and using evidence. We think it will lead to better outcomes for consumers, but also provides opportunities for firms to improve trust and ultimately consumer retention. So that's fascinating. So it sounds to me like the focus in the duty on behavioral biases is really very much the culmination of quite a lot of thinking that the FCA has been doing in this area. The rules are really clear that firms need to be thinking about this, but how can a behavioral insights approach actually help firms meet the requirements of the consumer duty? Well, I believe that the consumer duty really requires firms to fundamentally change the way they work from making assumptions about customers' behavior to really, really understanding it and also being able to evidence that they are doing this. This is where the behavioral insights approach and the expertise behavioral scientists bring come in. For example, we might observe and interview customers as they engage with, say, an online product or run rigorous experiments to test the impact of different features of a product on outcomes such as customer understanding. When the data gained from this is paired with an understanding of the behavioral sciences, we can explain why customers behave the way they do and also make effective changes to support better outcomes. And this is really relevant for three of the four outcomes the FCA lists in their guidance. So firstly, designing products and services that work for people. Secondly, designing communication that customers understand. And then finally, designing consumer support that meet people's needs. Can you tell us a bit more about what this could look like in practice, you know, the application of these behavioural insights? Let's say a bank wants to help its customers save more for emergencies, as an example. The bank has an instant access savings product, but it's not used as much as it should be, and customers go into unplanned overdraft on their current account a lot. We know from the behavioural sciences, the behavioural economics literature, that there are a couple of reasons for that. For example, people are present biased which means that they value rewards in the present, so spending the money now more than the future, having money then in case of an emergency and not having to pay overdraft fees. So we know what the literature says, but behavior is actually very context dependent. So we would also want to understand from customers directly why they do or do not choose to put money aside for an emergency. So we might interview some customers who might tell us that they just never think about potential emergencies when they think about saving versus spending. In behavioral science speak, that means that potential emergencies are just not salient at the point of decision making. And these customers that we interview might also tell us that signing up for the specific product the bank offers is just a bit of a hassle. So there are too many frictions, there's sludge. Armed with all those insights, we would then redesign the current product, the way it is presented or the way people can sign up to it to address all these barriers. And finally, we would test the impact of these changes on outcomes such as signups, but also people going into over unplanned overdraft. Ideally, we would do the testing through a randomized control trial where some customers already get access to this new, to this redesigned product and others don't. But that's really just one example to illustrate this a bit more. The great thing about behavioral insights is that it's a really, really versatile toolbox that can be applied to a variety of challenges. 
So we could speak about this fascinating subject matter for quite a lot longer, um, but unfortunately that's uh, all we have time for for this episode. So Ruth, thank you very much again for joining us. Please check out the show notes for links to our Consumer Duty page and for all our insights, including other podcast episodes. Both Linknotes and the Behavioural Insights team are here to help, so don't hesitate to contact us or anyone else at our firms if you would like more information about today's topic. Thank you very much for listening. 